All right, we are back. One reason I need to take a break in the months to come is because of Durchstadning. And uh, yes, my Swedish is atrocious. I have no idea that's correct pronunciation, but it translates into English as death cleaning. It means you remove unnecessary things and make your home nice and orderly when you think the time is coming close for you to leave the planet, to save precious time for our loved ones after we're gone. Well, I'm, I'm in fact not facing my own mortality, thank goodness. But it has been noted that this is a good thing to do in American society, even when you're not facing the final curtain. After all, one never knows when a driverless car is going to run one over. No, no. Actually, even if you're in your 30s, this kind of massive cleanup to organize your life is probably a good idea. My uh, Australian visitor who came to America to, to join us in our expedition to see the eclipse in Oregon was quite amused by the fact that everywhere she turned, there were yet more storage facilities. She would ask, what, what do you, why are you Americans storing so many things? To which I responded, well, what do you do when you fill your house up with crap? You buy more places to store more crap. Anyway, this got written up uh, in Time magazine a while ago from uh, Margarita Magnusson's book, The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning. Just to excerpt from it briefly, it notes that be aware of the fact that to downsize your home will take some time. Start by checking the basement or the attic or the cupboards by your front door. Many of the things you have in storage have probably been there for ages. You may even have forgotten what it is you have there, which is good because you will now realize you will not miss anything if you throw it away. Yes, I'm happy to report that not that long ago I was able to get rid of a box of Quaker Oats that I had that dated back to 1997. Sometimes we are a little depressed to discover that our suspicions of wrongdoing are more than borne out. We reported over the months on many occasions about the shenanigans surrounding Cambridge Analytica. What's surprising is it's taken until March of 2018 for something to be done about it. It has now been revealed that the data analytics firm employed by Donald Trump's 2016 campaign tapped the Facebook profiles of more than 50 million users without their permission, allowing it to capitalize on the private social media activity of a large portion of the U.S. electorate. Described as one of the largest data leaks in Facebook history, I'm not sure that's a proper description of this, but that's what they're calling it, one of the largest data leaks in Facebook history, allowed Cambridge Analytica, which had ties to Trump campaign strategist Stephen Bannon, to develop techniques that form the basis of its work on the Trump campaign. This was reported a couple weeks back by the New York Times and The Guardian. Facebook stepped up and said it has suspended Cambridge Analytica over allegations that it kept the improperly obtained user data after telling Facebook it had been deleted. In a blog post, Facebook explained that Cambridge Analytica had years ago received uh, user data from a Facebook app that purported to be a psychological research tool, though the firm was not authorized to have the information. Roughly 270,000 people downloaded and shared personal details with the app. Cambridge Analytica later certified, this is in 2015, it had destroyed the information it received, according to Facebook, although the social network said it received reports <clears throat> several days ago. This is early March several days ago that not all the data was deleted. Facebook says it's investigating. Cambridge Analytica has denied wrongdoing in a statement. 
It said the parent company, SCL Elections Unit, hired Alexander Kogan to undertake a large-scale research project in the U.S., but subsequently deleted all data it received from Kogan's company after learning that Kogan had obtained data in violation of Facebook policies. The firm claims that none of Kogan's data was used in its 2016 election work. The Facebook blog post written by Deputy General Counsel Paul Graywall cited the, quote, public prominence, unquote, of Cambridge Analytica, called the alleged data retention an unacceptable violation of trust, and said the social network will take legal action necessary to hold all parties responsible. Well, yeah, but but Trump's in the Oval Office. Mr. Zuckerberg, what are you going to do about that? Trump's campaign denied using the firm's data, saying it relied on the Republican National Committee for its information. The statement was issued saying the campaign used the RNC for its voter data and not Cambridge Analytica. Using the RNC data was one of the best choices the campaign made. Any claims that voter data were used from other sources to support the victory in 2016 are false. Cambridge Analytica is backed by the family of billionaire donor Robert Mercer, a hedge fund manager who also supported the Trump campaign and other conservative candidates and causes, uh, including Steve Bannon, the Trump campaign strategist. Trump officials have downplayed Cambridge Analytica's role, saying they briefly used the company for television advertising and paid some of its most skilled data employees. Now, Special Counsel Robert S. Mueller has reportedly requested documents from Cambridge Analytica for its investigation. That revelation underscores the power of social media networks and the unexpected ways in which technology companies can use data that users voluntarily give up. It also gives further hints to the important role big data plays in modern politics. I guess some of this data came from a personality profile. They asked, uh, they invited uh, Facebook users to jump in on and, you know, learn about yourself. And, and while you learn about yourself, we'll also learn about you. It's a win-win. Yeah, apparently when you downloaded it, you gave uh, Mr. Kogan consent to access information like the city, they said on their profile, the, and the content they'd expressed by pressing like buttons, as well as information about friend groups and contacts. It should be noted that when in marketing itself, Cambridge Analytica uh, promised that its so-called psychographic profiles could predict the personality and political leanings of every adult in the United States. And since we're taking a dive into the pool of bad behavior, let's talk about what happened to Toys R Us. It's been noted by business writers that a full diagnosis of what happened to Toys R Us would likely identify its massive debt load as its primary illness. The company got saddled with a hefty debt back in 2005, courtesy of a leveraged buyout in which Bain Capital, remember them, Mitt Romney's company, KKR and Company, and Vornado Realty Trust took the retailer private. And in recent months, the company's financial burden went from seriously challenging to unsustainable. Now, the writing I saw did say that Toys R Us had a history of bungling its e-commerce, that its store environments didn't change enough, and it didn't make the most of its baby business. But a lot of folks have pointed out that the store environment didn't change enough because money was being siphoned off at such a rate that there was none to improve the local retailers. Yeah, it's true. Kids are spending more time on tablets and smartphones and doing all they can to avoid the real world. 
and the games that might be in it, but um, that's only a small part of the problem. People have also pointed out that the U.S. movie industry had a crummy 2017, making it tougher to sell toys with silver screen tie-ins. That's got to be a minor issue. And I got to tell you, I am in over my head in trying to do analysis of private equity companies and the bad things they do. But there's quite a few articles out there on this topic, and um, I should read them. (laughs) So should you, my dear listener. One article that may uh, be rather accessible and simple was one written in Rolling Stone back when Mitt Romney was uh, trying to convince the public that the work he did for Bain Capital uh, was the same sort of thing he could do for the United States. This does kind of remind me of Woody Allen. I think it was in Annie Hall when he hearkened back to, I think, 1956 when he was working on the Adlai-Stevenson campaign. He was naturally down on President Eisenhower. He did make a passing reference to a fellow female campaign worker to whom he said he was trying to do what Eisenhower was doing to the country. Anyway, we got out of the, the, the Mitt Romney frying pan and into the Donald J. Trump fire, I think it could be said. But let me quote from the piece that appeared in, uh, in Rolling Stone titled, Why Private Equity Firms Like Bain Really Are the Worst of Capitalism. article was by Josh Kosman. He was the author of The Buyout of America, How Private Equity is Destroying Jobs and Killing the American Economy. So he does have a perspective on this. Writing back in 2008, Crossman said, By placing his career at Bain Capital at the center of his presidential campaign, former buyout artist Mitt Romney has put the private equity industry on trial. And it's about time. Romney wants us to believe that critics of private equity are against capitalism. They're not. They're against a predatory system created and perpetuated by Wall Street solely to pump up its own profits. Defenders of private equity say firms like Bain, which Romney co-founded in 1984, exist to build businesses, creating jobs, and prosperity all the while. Romney said at one of his GOP presidential debates, we started Staples, we started the Sports Authority, we started Bright Horizons Children's Center. Heck, We even started a steel mill in a farm field in Indiana. That steel mill operates today and employs a lot of people. Romney also touts Bain's success at taking struggling companies and putting them on a path to profitability. In the same debate, he said, sometimes we acquire businesses and tried to turn them around, typically effectively, and created tens of thousands of new jobs. Romney's whole election pitch turns on the story he tells about his time at Bain, which goes like this. I, Mitt, have a record of building businesses and creating jobs. And what I did for floundering companies, I'll do for the U.S. economy. There's only one problem with Romney's story, said Josh Kosman. It doesn't describe most of what private equity firms actually do. The companies Romney holds up for success, Staples, Sports Authority, etc., were not Bain private equity deals. They were venture capital investments in companies that Bain neither owned nor ran. All good and well. Venture capital is a good thing, essential for funding the growth of new and developing companies. But Romney didn't make his fortune through venture capital. He made it through private equity. And private equity, as President Obama pointed out this week, is a very different proposition. Talking of PE firms, the president said their priority is to maximize profits, and that's not always going to be good for businesses or communities or workers. Said Josh Kosman, here's what private equity is really about. A firm, like Bain, obtains cheap credit and uses it to acquire a company in a leveraged buyout. 
Leverage refers to the fact that the company being purchased is forced to pay for about 70% of its own acquisition by taking out loans. If this sounds like an odd arrangement, that's because it is. Imagine a homeowner purchasing a house and making the bank responsible for repaying its own loan, and you start to get the picture. Okay, but what about this much more virtuous business of swooping in and restoring the struggling companies to financial health? Well, that's not a large part of what private equity firms do either. In fact, they more typically target profitable, slow-growth market leaders. Private equity firms presently own companies employing one of every 10 U.S. workers, 10 million people. And that's where the fun begins. Once the buyout is completed, the private equity guys start swinging the meat axe, aggressively cutting costs wherever they can, so that the company can start paying off its new debt by laying off workers and cutting capital costs. This process often boosts operating profit without a significant hit to the business, but only in the short term. In the long run, the austerity approach makes it difficult for companies to stay competitive, not least because money that would otherwise have been invested in expansion or product development or making nicer stores for Toys R Us, which might increase revenue down the line, is used to pay off the company's debt. It takes several years before the impacts of this predatory activity, reduced customer service, inferior products, becomes fully apparent. By that time, the private equity firm has generally resold the business at a profit and moved on. But what happens to the companies after they've been resold? Well, it's not a pretty picture, as I discovered while researching my book, The Buyout of America. Consider a few numbers. More than half the 25 companies that private equity firms bought in the 1980s borrowed more than $1 billion in junk bonds. More than half went bankrupt. Of the 10 biggest buyouts in the 1990s, Six, including Saks department stores, fared much worse than they likely would have if they'd not been acquired in leveraged buyouts. Three of the top ten produced mixed results. Only one business performed better than its peers. As for the 2000s, four of the companies acquired in the ten biggest buyouts in this decade, including Dallas Utility Energy Future Holdings, are already in considerable distress. Coastman goes on to cite some of the specific records of Bain Capital which Romney owned from 1992 to 2001. 1988, Bain puts $10 million to buy Sage stores. In the mid-90s, it took it public, collected $184 million from stock offerings. Stage filed for bankruptcy in 2000. 1992, Bain bought American Pad and Paper, investing $5 million and collecting $107 million from dividends. They filed for bankruptcy in 2000. 1993, Bain invested $25 million when buying GS Industries, which received $58 million from dividends. GS filed for bankruptcy in 2001. 1997, Bain invested $41 million when buying Details, collected at least $70 million from stock offerings. The company filed for bankruptcy in 2003. Romney owned 100% of Bain Capital, making him involved in all of these deals which represented more than 20% of the money Bain made from its investments between 1987 and 1995. Bain's focus on all this time was leveraged buyouts, and it had not made venture investments since its early days. He closes by noting, All this is bad enough, but leveraged buyouts don't only hurt businesses, workers, and the economy generally. They also shortchange taxpayers. Via a giant loophole in the tax code, that enables companies to deduct loan interest from taxes. 
This provision was originally intended to encourage borrowing to build new factories, not to finance leveraged buyouts. But according to Notre Dame professor Brad Batersher, private equity-owned companies paid a 22% tax rate before being bought and 10% the year after being acquired. That adds up to a savings of $130 billion in taxes since 2000. Private equity has legions of defenders from Wall Street to Washington. The industry is very well connected. Four of the past eight U.S. Treasury secretaries have worked in it. But when they point to the relatively modest venture capital investments of companies like Bain, don't be fooled. Look instead to the way Bain and its peers made the bulk of their money through leveraged buyouts and see who made out best in most of the deals, the businesses or the private equity guys. Well, I'm pretty sure it wasn't the businesses. Anyway, it's sad to imagine that, that a company like Toys R Us can go under because of these sorts of imaginations. And to change the subject rather dramatically, I would note that although I've intended to do so, I have not yet checked out the next the Netflix series on Rajneesh Param. This is a six-hour documentary series titled Wild, Wild Country. I'm going to check it out, though, for no other reason than the intriguing review I stumbled on in the New York Times. Writer Mike Hale said, Jane Stork and Ma Anand Sheila on screen through the six-hour documentary series Wild Wild Country on Netflix look and sound like friends of your grandmother who have dropped by to reminisce about the good old days. They don't look like leaders of an international religious movement known for Rolls Royces and ecstatic group sex or women who went on the lam to Europe before serving time for crimes that included arson, wiretapping, and attempted murder. It's particularly jarring when the petite, gray-haired Ms. Stork acknowledges that she volunteered to carry out assassinations twice while serving the spiritual leader known as Bhagwan Sri Ragnish. But that's what their good old days entailed. Now, many, many years ago, on Radio Parallax, we spoke with UC Davis Professor Mark Wheelis, who was an expert on uh, weapons of mass destruction, including biological weapons, and he told us about a little adventure up in Oregon when the Rajneeshis decided, as a matter of policy, to institute biological warfare against the community which they saw themselves at, odd with, at odds with. They got, I don't know, I forget what it was, salmonella or something, and they, they put it into the food at the salad bar. It was part of some scheme to change the voters, uh, change the vote up there. They were trying to vote out the ashram, I think, with, with limited success. I, I, don't, I don't know. This is a documentary that I think is well worth checking out. If, if for no other reason than to hear Ma Anand Sheila again describe how it was she served the Rajneesh. Um, I remember back in the day when people questioned why, why it was he needed 57 Rolls Royces. Her comment, I think it was on 60 Minutes, was that we all have what we need. And by implication, the Rajneesh felt he needed 57 Rolls Royces. It was indeed a very strange cult. Although we hasten to remind people what the difference in definition is between a cult and a religion. In our opinion, the best answer is probably that religions are bigger. Although some claim that religions have political power. I'm not sure. I do remember back in the day when they would interview Rajneesh, and he always looked as though he'd taken a major, major dose of quaaludes. And perhaps he had. I also remember being at a party of a friend of mine in where else but Marin County when a Rajneeshi was there. Or 
I guess he was, I don't know, was a former Rajneeshi or he was, I guess he must have still had good feelings about it because when at that point it turned up that the guru had died unexpectedly, the guy darkly hinted that radioactive thallium may have been employed, which I thought was pretty innovative since thallium itself is a deadly poison. I guess if you made it radioactive, it'd be that much worse. But the subject of poisoning people by way of uh, assassination really is no joke when you look at what um, what the Russians have been up to lately. If powerful figures in Russia consider, consider you to be an enemy, you may escape to the West, but you might still get a big dose of radioactive tea with polonium-210 spiking or might have nerve gas placed on your skin and suffer the consequences or be strangled mysteriously. Anyway, in the time we have left here, uh, we should probably lighten the mood considerably, don't you think? All right, in the minutes we have left, we can probably do well to, uh, to consult from the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series, uh, one of their favorites, and one of our favorites, Dumb Crooks. We all hate crooks, and we love to see them get their comeuppance, don't we? How about this? Down in New Zealand, a couple guys were facing... Uh, Jail time, or at least Reagan Retty was facing jail time. His buddy Tiranara White was facing sentencing. The two men were handcuffed together after their respective hearings and were awaiting transport back to Hastings, back to the Hastings, New Zealand jail when they decided to make a break for it. The connected convicts darted across the street and encountered, wouldn't you know it, a lamppost. One man went right, the other one went left, and they slammed into each other on the other side. Each blamed the other one for going the wrong way. Both got returned to jail. Down in Morelia, Mexico, in 2009, thieves broke into a cell phone store. They made off with some hollow plastic cell phone replicas that were on display. Employees told police that the burglars passed right up dozens of real cell phones just a few feet away in order to steal the fake ones. Also back in 2009 in Quincy, Massachusetts, a man named Christopher Gray posted an ad on Craigslist. It read, 420 help is here. 420, of course, is stoner subculture code for smoking marijuana. Or at least so we hear, says Uncle John. A man called the phone number and Gray arranged to meet him in a nearby parking lot. The man showed up with a friend. Are you guys cops? asked Gray. No, they replied. Okay, I trust you. You look normal. Gray then sold them a $45 bag of marijuana, and it turned out, well, when you know it, they were cops. Said the arresting officer, it goes without saying we will continue to monitor Craigslist. Of course, we take the editorial position here at Radio Parallax that uh, selling marijuana in small amounts shouldn't even be considered a crime. And I believe that in the meantime, Massachusetts has joined the list of states uh, making it legal, which ought to make things quite a bit better for Christopher Gray of Quincy. And finally, my favorite, one night back in March of 2010, a Cleveland police officer tried to pull over a car for a minor traffic violation, but the driver sped off. The ensuing chase reached speeds of 90 miles an hour before the car stopped at an intersection and four men jumped out. They all ran toward a tall chain link fence with thickly wound barbed wire lining the top. Two of the men were captured right away. Another was tased while climbing the fence. The driver, Ricky Flowers, actually made it all the way over despite severely cutting his arms on the wire. Did he get away? Well, no. He landed in the yard of a women's prison. Flowers received several stitches at the hospital before being taken to jail. Yeah, yeah, a men's jail. 
Why didn't he pull over when the cops told him? Because he told officers he had a suspended license and he didn't want his mother to know he was driving. Well, on some level, that's being a good son. All right, that about does it for today's program. We will not go away, and we hopefully will be back, terrestrially speaking. I I just can't tell you when. I'm proud to report that we have close to 800 programs of two or three segments apiece available on our archives at radioparallax.com. So really, you should never be that far away from a fix, as it were. Those programs, like this program, were produced by Edward McMillan, who, as far as we know, does not, in fact, have any sort of non-disclosure agreement with Stormy Daniels. And neither do I. I am your faithful host, Douglas Everett. This has been Radio Parallax, and we will see you again soon. (music) 